But I also wanted to tell happy coming out story because I want young queer kids to understand that they should be able to reasonably expect their parents to love them and protect them when they come out to them. And if they don't, if that doesn't gel with their experience, if their experience coming out was fraught and they're sad and they're angry, I want them to feel valid in that anger because they know deep in their heart that they deserve to be protected and to be loved in a way that they were not. You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. Hi, I'm Tracy Nguyen Ming, and welcome back. Earlier this year, we hosted a live interview with Jung Leng Wing, author and illustrator of The Magic Fish. The Magic Fish is a gorgeous graphic novel about an immigrant Vietnamese family. Jung was born in 1990 in a refugee camp in the Palawan, Philippines. His parents escaped Vietnam by boat and resettled in Minnesota. He grew up learning English with his parents through picture books and was always specifically drawn to fairy tales. He discovered his passion for art early on, but as the eldest of two children, when it came time to go to college, he decided he needed to pursue a more practical career for his family. He went on to study art history so he could at least be around art, even if he wasn't working in the arts. Eventually, Jung found himself gravitating back to being an artist. Jung's list of accomplishments and published works includes DC Comics, Ani Press, Boom Studios, and Image Comics. The Magic Fish is his debut graphic novel. It is a coming out story about a young Vietnamese boy and his immigrant parents, and the young boy's struggle in finding the right words to tell his parents about his sexuality. It is a powerful read about family and friendships with exquisite illustrations that takes readers on a journey into past and present through fairy tales and reality. And what I really love about the book is how Jung wanted to share a story that was warm and loving. Jung also shares with us his own experiences in telling his parents he is gay and how the magic fish, while not a memoir, it is somewhat confessional of his own life experiences. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I just want to say that I, I do love listening to the podcast and I was so excited um, because it, it was the first time I'd ever heard kind of colloquial stories of Vietnamese diasporic people just talking about ourselves and our stories. And it was just incredible to be able to kind of see and hear that. Oh, thank you so much. So tell me about your family's history, your parents, and like how your mom ended up giving birth to you at a refugee camp. So since, let's start like before the beginning, before me, and I'll talk a little bit about my parents. Um, and they're wonderful people. Um, they, uh, I'm going to get some of the details wrong. So I'm sure my parents will, you know, they'll listen to this and they'll correct me later. But the gist of it is that, um, so my parents both uh, were born after the late 60s or after the mid 50s. I think my mom was born in 1970 and she's a little younger than my dad. Um, and so they uh, were too young to remember the actual Vietnam War, but they did grow up in the aftermath of it. And so they experienced a lot of that uh, kind of turbulent political transition and 
contended with a lot of um, political persecution because they came from families that were on, on the wrong side of the war. Um, and so my dad, uh, when he was very young, he kind of grew up a little bit in one of those new economic zones. Um, and that's not something that I know a whole lot about, but his stories about it are frequently pretty harrowing. Um, my parents are also not shy about talking about their experiences either. It's actually kind of incredible because most of my friends' parents, most folks um, of their generation that I've spoken to are very hesitant about discussing their trauma. And my parents have a certain, um, I mean, they were quite young when a lot of the most harrowing experiences of theirs happened, but they're very... Uh, almost devil may care about it. There's gravity to the way that they speak about their experiences, but I've been lucky to be able to ask them questions and hear their stories um, kind of whenever I want to. They're usually pretty happy to share them. But anyway, my dad um, was, uh, was very poor when he was younger. He came from a family that was evidently pretty affluent, but then after everything was repatriated, they lost everything. Um, and so he came from one of those families. And so his older siblings are also um, like they tend to have a different air about them. They're raised very differently. So they remember affluence. And my dad never knew that. And so he and his younger siblings all grew up very poor. And so they yeah, have very different. So how outlooks. old was he after the war? Um, let's see. He was born in the middle of the 60s. So he like he was very young. A so teenager. he remembers a lot of yeah. So he would have been a teen. Um, yeah. And so he uh he sold ice cream out of a rickshaw at some point and he used to collect firewood to sell it. And then when he was a teenager, he decided, you know, that he, <laughs> he wanted to um, be able to defend himself a little bit when he would get picked on or robbed when he was out selling his ice cream. And so he trained to become a, a kickboxer and he became a pretty successful prize fighter for a little bit of his life. Um, and uh, he and my mother met because my mother is from Nyejang. Um, and she, uh, her neighborhood, she, I remember her telling me that the reason why she wanted to get into martial arts, which is how she met my father, was because she witnessed so much domestic violence where she was living because conditions were so terrible, family structures were really insecure, and so patriarchy became very, very toxic. And so she would see her classmates come home with bruises all over their bodies and she would just kind of understand that this was the way that everyone around her was growing up and so to her teenage mind she was like I'm going to take matters into my own hands I'm going to um, learn kickboxing so if ever you know a man decides that he um, is going to not respect my boundaries I'm going to have a means to defend myself um, and she did very well and <laughs> she impressed my father and they started <laughs> eating and very shortly thereafter, they shoved off from a shore in, in Yechang and wound up in the Philippines together. Oh my gosh. So did they go um, just them? Yes, they, um, so they tried to leave a couple of times. The first time was unsuccessful. And so they both were incarcerated for a little while separately. And then the second time was successful and they brought... Um, my my mom's younger sister with them. Sounds like your mom was already very progressive. Yeah, I mean, I think she was just very, very practical. Um, it's difficult to describe them ideologically because they're very um, materially like oriented in terms of, and not, I don't mean to say that they're materialistic. They're not really. They're, um, they're just very practical kind of feet on the ground. This is what my circumstances are sort of people. And so they problem solve things from that perspective all of the time. So they are, so they did wind up just on a very practical level being kind of progressive. <laughs> and so did they leave by boat? 
They did. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think it was actually my grandfather's fishing boat because he was a nurse um, serving the Americans during the war. And then he became a fisherman afterward and they used his boat. And then um, did the rest of the family eventually come over or did some of them stay behind? Um, A lot of my dad's side remained in Vietnam um, and some of his brothers emigrated over as well, but um, we still have some family in Vietnam. Um, My mother's uh, sisters, and so my my dad has mostly brothers. He was one of, oh my gosh, I don't even remember how many uncles and aunts I have on that side, Um, but uh, I think there are 16 still alive today. Yeah, he he came from a huge family and my mother had three sisters. Um, and so when I was growing up, I honestly thought that, you know, dads only had brothers and mothers only had sisters for the longest time. It was very <laughs> embarrassing. Um, and uh, yeah, oh God, and 16 so, boys is like a little army. Yeah, it is like a little <laughs> army. And there's just it's like a little village and they all have just complicated histories with each other. Um, yeah. And so my mother's uh, oldest sister um, wound up immigrating to Japan. And so she lives there now. Um and um, her one older sister and her one younger sister. My mom's kind of strange because she is kind of the matriarch of the family, but she's in the middle. <laughs> so she finds that position very strange. But she, um, uh, her sisters eventually, uh, we sponsored them to immigrate here. So they actually came over here when I was a teenager. So did you guys go straight to Minnesota? Uh, we did. Yeah, I think we did go straight to Minnesota. Um, there are great pictures of me when I was very little. Uh, experiencing snow with my parents for the first time it was a I think my parents adjusted better than uh what I would assume that they would if they were to have told me that this is what happened but yeah we went directly to Minnesota (laughs) how did you end up in Minnesota did you already have family there no I think it was because our sponsor family was from Minnesota and so they were here to kind of help my parents transition and get settled well I don't know if you have like your birth photo at the refugee camp. I remember um, actually when I was getting my driver's license when I was 16, I had an American birth certificate because I got one when I became a citizen, but my parents thought that they meant my literal birth certificate, which I was born in a refugee camp. And so it was a small slip of pink news, like newspaper um, parchment with just a little record of when I was born um, and that couldn't be used as an official documentation for me. So I had to go back and get my my um, government issued American birth certificate after that. So I have to admit, I've never been to Minnesota. <laughs> I'd, love to, <laughs> I'd love to just kind of hear, um, you know, growing up what it was like in Minnesota. Is there like a large uh, Vietnamese or even Asian American population in your town? So um, I live currently in Minneapolis, and so there are a lot of um, Vietnamese Americans and Hmong Americans, uh, especially in the Twin Cities um, in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And uh, I remember, like, I went to a Vietnamese Catholic church when I was really little, and my parents um, had a Vietnamese American community. I feel like it started to peter off as I got a little bit older and people started acclimating to the culture. And so our Vietnamese American community became slightly less tight knit um, by my recollection. Um, But I do remember there being other Vietnamese American immigrants because we did, I think there's some history there with our, um, with Walter Mondale feeling a way about um, the war. And so he, uh, I guess was pretty quickly um, supportive of efforts to uh, resettle 
uh, refugees here in Minnesota. I remember when I was in elementary school, um, we had a very supportive uh, community. And so a lot of folks were pretty proactive about help, helping us get acclimated. Um, but I think as I got just a little bit older, um, I think just before middle school was when I started finding myself in a position where I would be really protective of my parents in spaces where, you know, we're not surrounded by other Vietnamese people and kind of, you know, translating for them on our best days and then sort of ushering them away from interactions that were not treating them well if they hadn't picked up on it right away. And so I think I realized pretty early that we, you know, we spoke a hybrid language at home and that we were straddling two different cultures and trying to kind of um, facilitate understanding between the family members in that circumstance. Um, so it was pretty, I was pretty young. Yeah. And your parents were young when they came, right? In their twenties, uh, I think. Yeah. My dad, um, my mom was 20 when she had me. So she would have been in her early twenties when she immigrated here. And my mom was, or, and then my dad was in his mid twenties then. And did they get a chance to like go back to school or what were their professions? Um, my mom, uh, stayed at home for most of my childhood and then she got into the nail industry, um, which, uh, is, you know, very typical, but it's something that we're quite proud of because it's kind of a staple of Vietnamese American identity. Um, and she now owns her own nail salon. So I'm very, very proud of her. Um, and my dad, uh, trained as a carpenter. And so he went to a local community college and a trade school, I think, um, I forget which one it was, but he, continued to study to be a carpenter so that he could stay apprised of kind of American professional standards. And now he also owns his own cabinet shop. I forgot who the review was from, but about the magic fish. And it says an immigrant story that is warm, loving family and friends are a refreshing alternative to immigrant stories that focus on family problems. And I really love that quote. And when I read your book, I knew exactly what that reviewer meant. Um, because oftentimes, I think when we think about stories that center around migration and war and refugee and immigrant experiences, we think of tragedy and conflict and painful stories. Um, and you have some of that in The Magic Fish, but I think, um, and it's really only when it switches to things, mom, um, but really the, there's so much love and support in the book um, among things, friends and his family. And thing is the main character for um, the audience who haven't read the book yet. And even like in the illustrations, what I loved is the subtlety of the affection that the parents have for each other in your drawings. Um, so it's just such a, a lovely, refreshing alternative, I would say. And so I don't know, I think, I think the book you have said in past interviews that it's somewhat of a memoir. Um, so can you tell us about your own experiences and how much of the stories within the book reflects your own personal life? So the magic fish is constructed sort of strangely um, because I'd never I've never written a work of fiction before the magic fish. It was the first thing that I'd ever really written um, on my own that wasn't an essay or something structured like that. And so the magic fish is actually uh, built a little bit like an essay. It kind of starts with the thesis statement and then there are supporting statements and then it wraps itself up at the end a little bit. But that part came a little bit later um, when I got the book contract to make the magic fish. 
I mostly considered it an excuse to tell all of my favorite fairy tales. Fairy tales are something that I love, um, have always loved growing up. And so I wanted to seize the opportunity to draw all of my favorites. Um, and then I had to sit down and really identify why all of these stories are resonant to me. And I gravitated towards underdog kind of Cinderella stories. And I loved The Little Mermaid ever since I was very, very small. Um, and so from there, I kind of started to draw connections to um, the resonance that those particular stories have with immigrant experiences and with um, themes of transition and with queerness. And that's when I realized like, oh, like I love these stories because they're um, because they're something that I find really deeply connects with something inside of me. So I have to make this story somewhat personal. Um, and I gave myself permission to be as confessional as I wanted to be because everybody's first novel, first project is a little bit confessional and I wanted to get that out of the way. Um, and uh, I, I didn't want it to be an autobiography because I was in my twenties when I was writing The Magic Fish. And I was like, I haven't lived enough life to really write an autobiography that seems strange and also memory is imperfect and for a lot of diasporic children the transition between our kind of mother language and then that hybrid language and then kind of slowly losing our capacity to speak our mother language it comes with this strange thing where our memories suddenly become inaccessible because our child selves literally spoke a different language than our adult selves. And so we can't remember the things that we said or were spoken to us. And so to relieve myself of the imperfection of memory and the responsibility of being a record keeper, um, I decided to tell a work of fiction that was somewhat based um, in my life um, in a way that uh, felt true to my heart but kind of in a fictionalized way. Uh, and so a lot of the, some of the events in the story were based on things that did happen to me when I was a kid. And the parent characters are very much based on my parents. They're affectionate in the same ways that my parents were. And they have a lot of the same driving priorities and this, a lot of the same conflicts that my parents encountered. Yeah, the role of the father in the book was a quiet one. But I, I think the moments that he appeared in the story it showed, um, again, just so much love and support. Um, it showed respect for him, but also the love and support that he had for his family. But it was just such a, um, yeah, it was like the moments that he did come in, it was impactful, but like he was kind of a softer character throughout the book. Um, so I don't know how much of that reflects your father. Um <laughs> It does. My dad, I mean, for being someone who's like, a, he's a very masculine man's man sort of person. And he's very physically imposing. He is in his late 50s now, and he's still incredibly strong. Like he still exercises the same way that he did when he was still a prize fighter. And growing up, he was always very, very protective. And one of the things that I love about him is that he makes adjustments when you request it of him. I remember being 10 years old and I told my dad, hey, I wish that you told me and my brother that you love me out loud more often. And he has said that to us pretty much every day that we've spent time together ever since, because he realized that that was something that was important to us. But one aspect of that character kind of being very understated in the book is that I, I remember you know, the ways that my dad would express affection without 
words when we were much younger. And I wanted to carry that through. And I wanted to make sure that my dad knew that, you know, now as an adult, in retrospect, in hindsight, I appreciate that about him. Oh, and that is so rare, I think, in our culture. I mean, I have a lot of male figures in my family. And um, I think it's only recent that they've been more communicative and affectionate. But um, definitely growing up, it was not that at all. Um, and speaking of your dad, I think when we connected a couple of weeks ago, you had mentioned he only recently read your book. <laughs> yeah. Yes, <laughs> he only very recently read my book. <laughs> um, so why is that? Because it, it's been out for over two years, right? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think a part of it is just that my parents don't really like to read. Their relationship to literacy is different than mine, because when I grew up here, they really encouraged me to read and um, so that I could be very well grounded in American culture and, you know, have a positive relationship with learning so that I could get good grades and get into a good school and get a good job, all that sort of stuff. Um, but when they were young, they didn't have time to develop a relationship with reading that was entertainment that was positive. They basically only read in school. And then for most of their young adulthoods, they were struggling and they were making decisions that most people never they would didn't encounter. They didn't have time to read probably, right? Exactly. Reading yeah. is almost like a luxury, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. So it took them a little while to get around to reading it. Um, but I think also they're just very busy people. <laughs> they're, um, they're both small business owners. So I, I didn't expect them to. I never push them to read it. They knew that I had a project that was out in the world. And then they finally got around to reading it, I think, because one of my relatives or one of my parents' friends read it and they were like, this is actually very good. You should look at this. I would love to just kind of like meet them one day because just hearing you describe them, they sound like such a sweet couple. Um, so tell me about like the making of the magic fish, because you had mentioned kind of like what you thought your first book would be. Um, so I guess one is, have you always knew you had a love for art? And then at what point did you want to become a novelist? Okay. So when I was growing up, I was very aware of my position as like the oldest child in an immigrant family, right? So I was, I loved picture books because that was how my parents and I connected. We read on the same level. And so we would practice reading together just like in the book. Um, and I, I loved storybooks with beautiful, elaborate pictures. And a lot of the books that I chose were illustrated, I think in like the 1920s and 30s, it was very all golden age of illustration. And then by the time I was in college, I, I sought those things out intentionally so that I could figure out what drew me to those things. Um, but I'd always loved cartoons, I'd always loved comics, and I didn't think that it was an adult responsible thing to do to pursue it as a professional avenue. So I tried my very best not to pursue this. Um, was that, was so that like your own personal pressure or did you feel mm -hmm. the pressure around you? I did not feel any pressure from my parents. They truly wanted me to do whatever it was that I wanted. They were like, well, we're here now. You have the freedom to decide whatever it is that you want to do. We're going to support you no matter what. Just make sure that you can support yourself if we can't. Um, and so... I took that to mean like, I don't want to be a burden on my parents at all because they've already given me so much. So I'm going to go to a liberal arts university and get a, a well-rounded education. And they also gave me the most scholarship money. So I, I couldn't go to art school anyway because they didn't give me any scholarship money for it. Um, so I, uh, uh, I went to a small liberal arts college called Hamlin University in St. Paul. 
And I decided that my compromise, um, and my parents didn't discourage me from the arts really, but my compromise in order to make sure that I got an adult job that my parents could describe to their friends um, was, uh, was that I would work around art and not actually work in art, not actually make the art myself. So I studied art history and uh, I did studio painting as well. And I got an internship at the Minnesota Historical Society to do dramaturgical research, but I lost that internship that summer because the, <laughs> the Minnesota government shut down because they couldn't decide on a budget together. And so I was non-essential personnel, so I was let go. Um, and I couldn't graduate without the internship, so I had to find another one. And between finding another internship and um, panicking about what my future was going to look like if I don't graduate, I started cartooning again and posting pictures of uh, what I drew on the internet and I started to get the attention of some other artists and editors. So what came first like the story or the images or I, I, I mean like what was the process? So um, what came first originally was a series of images and I had I really believe that I have no interest in writing fiction whatsoever. And so I was just like, I'm going to make these pieces for gallery shows or for book illustrations because I really like a book format. Um, so they were like standalones. You weren't necessarily yeah. threading them yet. Yes, I wasn't threading them yet at all. I just happened to like all of these different stories and I made images that um, illustrated them. Um, and then I, uh, I wove them all together to kind of sell the book. Um, and then... Um, I'm someone who considers myself to be, I used to consider myself to be a visually oriented person. And so the, the, the pictures technically came first, but by the time I got around to actually writing it, I realized that I'm someone who likes a lot of structure and I couldn't envision what I wanted to draw until I'd actually written out the complete story. And so it went from being a picture first project to actually being a text first project for me. And that's how I work now. Wow. And was it hard though to make that flip to writing first? It really was um, because I'm the sort of person who really likes rules and structure. And I realized that I didn't know what a comic book script looked like really um, before it became a graphic novel. And I'd worked with other writers and I'd read other people's scripts for shorter projects, but I didn't know how to organize a 200 some page graphic novel. And so that was a huge learning curve for me. Um, I asked for script samples from a bunch of different writers and they all gave me completely different looking things. And then I realized I had to just make up the rules on my own and I had to get really comfortable with that. Uh, and yeah, and so after I got over that learning curve, everything else went fairly smoothly for me. So, um, and I wanted to ask the three fairy tales that you chose to have in your book. Um, so one was like a version of The Little Mermaid the other one was um, a version that I actually had never heard of, of Cinderella. Um, and what was the third one? Thumbgam. Thumbgam. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the fairy tales that I chose, I had always wanted to illustrate um, uh, Thumbgam, the Vietnamese version of Cinderella. It's, it was a story that I grew up with. As a matter of fact, when I read Cinderella when I was a small child, my dad was like, we have a story that's just like this, but it's a lot bloodier. <laughs> and so for some reason, I always wanted to produce this story within a format that I really loved. Um, and so I uh, I knew that I wanted that to be the centerpiece of the, the graphic novel. And I wanted to 
impress upon readers that fairy tales are um, really wonderful things because they can provide you with this little window into different parts of the world in different times because a lot of different cultures and a lot of different times kind of repeat stories with very similar tropes, but they're sort of perfect because of that, because they they change in sort of meaningful ways that tell you a little bit about the storyteller um, as you're reading the story. And so you can't help but glean something from the source that you're currently experiencing of that story. And so I wanted to give readers the impression that a story is organic and that it changes and that it changes clothes in order to subsist in different places, just like people do, just like immigrants do. Um, and that was part of that, that kind of visual thesis of, um, of those two kind of Cinderella stories. Um, and The Little Mermaid is a story that is specifically about um, transition and moving from a place that you know and love and surrendering your agency and going someplace where you have no agency whatsoever. So, um, so that that's kind of the, the impetus for those three stories winding up in the book in that way. And I think in your author's note, you had talked about all the um, research and um, studies and references you tried to make in the costume and design of those fairy tales. So um, can you talk a little bit about that process of trying to figure out, you know, how do you make the clothing, the hair, the look throughout the stories? So that was, uh, oh my gosh, there were so many feelings that went into that process. And I think while I was actually writing the story, it didn't feel super personal to me just yet. Um, and I'm not someone who gets very emotional about things. I tend to like to keep very emotional things at arm's length. And so I was, as I was writing the story, I was very much like, these are the events that happened to these characters. And, the, and this is just how it played out. And I was very reserved about it. And then by the time I went into looking into the clothing and the, you know, the, you know, the period settings and the, the, um, the set pieces for the panels and the stories, that was when it felt more personal to me because I sort of felt for the first time, this sense of bereavement that I had a loss of culture um, as I was growing up. I think um, a lot of immigrant kids kind of go through this period of feeling very in between. We're like, okay, so we come from this place and people sometimes expect us to be able to speak for this place, but a lot of us haven't really ever been there, there for any significant amount of time. Um, and so I was, I was feeling a way about, am I allowed to tell stories about Vietnamese-ness as a Vietnamese person who's never been to Vietnam and who, you know, wouldn't be able to speak the language with any strong proficiency if I went back now. And the language has evolved over a series of years. So even if I went back with my parents who speak fluently, they speak fluently in a language that was spoken, you know, 20 years ago. 30 years ago. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they, you know, they would have a little bit of a challenge of their own. And so there's this feeling of like, of bereavement a little bit. And I really felt that. And I felt this pressure to, you know, you know, be super informed about things in order to proceed. Um, and I think research is good. And I like doing research. But at some point, I, um, <laughs> I surrendered that expectation of edifying the public about Vietnamese, Vietnamese-ness and just decided to tell a story that I wanted to tell. Um, and starting with designing the costumes, 
I learned so much about the histories of why things visually exist the way that they do in our popular imaginations. And I loved that. Um, and it started actually, I told Bean's story first. And so that uh, kind of Western Cinderella story, I learned about, you know, austerity measures that were taking place during wars. Um, and so the ways that we envision the princess dress today is, is kind of like this disnified version of this dress, where after the world wars, designers were suddenly allowed to use reams of fabric before that used to be allocated for the war effort to make parachutes and to make uniforms and that sort of thing. And so suddenly fabrics became luxurious. And that's why, you know, Western fairy tale princesses look the way that they do in the Western popular imagination. And that was fun for me. And then I started to do research um, on the Vietnamese Cinderella story. And I realized that, so the story ostensibly takes place in ancient Vietnam. And I didn't know what that looks like. And I actually didn't know what an essential like Vietnamese culture was. And I realized that I don't know that I could identify one because a lot of our culture is a confluence of all of the forces that have occupied the nation for hundreds of years. And so China and France and Portugal and Japan for eight months. And, um, and then through, you know, the war and through reunification, things have transitioned so much that I, also relieved myself of the pressure to be correct about all of those things and just pick a period that I was fascinated by. And so that's why the Vietnamese Cinderella looks like it's from the 1940s and 50s in Vietnam, because it was, because they were wearing, you know, period clothing that I imagine my grandmother would have seen. Um, a lot of it became suddenly an exploration of what people's imaginations looked like. And that means exploring the world that they might have seen. And that part of the process was finally what got me emotionally invested in the story. Yeah, and it was so fitting with the time period too, because during that French colonialism, like you can imagine, you know, the state of family and status mm -hmm. and what it might feel like to be a stepdaughter in like that type of household. Do you know what I mean? It just, it was very yeah. fitting with it. Um, so the magic fish, the title of the book, was it based off of the Cinderella fairy tale? Yes, it was. And then I think thematically, I started to insert like fishes and other stories and the little mermaid, that was very easy. And then in the first one, I had to sort of invent different aspects of the fairy tale to make it textually suit the rest of the book. So how did you decide that that would be the title of the book? Um, well, I think it was um, it was going to be um, like a magical fish is something that all of the stories have in common. And so I thought that was very easy. Um, and I also didn't want to, uh, to name the book in a way that would exoticize the experience of being Vietnamese American. I wanted it to be um, an accessible story title that um, indicated first and foremost that it was a series of fairy tales. I love the intentional aspect of using the three colors mm -hmm. throughout the book, the red, the blue, and the yellow. And the blue is um, the fairy tales were told in blue. So uh, what was the process of deciding on that format? Because I love it. It's so intentional. And again, it's so subtle, though, and understated, but yet powerful. 
Sure. Um, that was, uh, that evolved from a compromise that I came to with my editors because I really wanted to tell As the it story always does. <laughs> in black and white. Yes. Yeah. Always. But they're brilliant. Um, my editors are really, really wonderful storytellers and they could kind of identify what I was trying to do. So they were like, okay, so I, we want to print the book in full color but uh, you can use tones, you can just use values instead, and then we can print the book in a limited palette. Um, and then it evolved to become, oh, like I could use several different palettes to indicate to the reader what part of the story they're in and what story universes they're occupying. Um, and so it became, it evolved into a really useful storytelling device um, to give people a sense of place inside of the book without having to use didactics and without having to, you know, lay things out in text all of the time. Yeah, no, I think it's brilliant. The one thing that I did want to also touch on during this interview is um, the book is, you know, a coming out story mm -hmm. of the little boy theme, the main character. And, um, you know, he's very close to his parents, but he, because of the language barrier, because of, you know, um, his mom having this a little weight on her heart because her family and her mother is still in Vietnam. Um, the father, although very loving um, in the story, it doesn't seem like he's home often. I think he works like late or odd hours. Other coming out stories have touched on conflict and lack of acceptance. But this one tells a different story, actually. This book is about um, not about the drama among friends and families, because actually the drama is all in the fairy tales. But when it comes to the friends and a family, it's about love and support. So can you talk about um, your choice in kind of building the narrative that way and perhaps even your own experience in opening up to your parents? I think the way that I wanted to tell this coming out story uh, has a little bit of a corollary to the way that I wanted to tell this immigrant story as well, where I wanted to proffer an alternative narrative about the ways that we can navigate these things. Um, and so growing up, I read a lot of really difficult and fraught immigrant stories. And I also had the same experience of coming out stories as well. And so I think by the time I was in college, I was like, okay, I guess everything's going to be difficult for me. <laughs> um, but uh, I actually had not that experience. My parents were very warm um, and very accepting, and they were very intentional about making sure that we were understood, um, even though they kind of struggled to get there sometimes. And so I'm not pushing back on any of those narratives, because where there's smoke, there's fire. There often are fraught relationships among immigrant families and around queerness in immigrant families. But I think, um, to my mind, uh, queer readers understand that those other stories are out there, and they understand that sometimes life is difficult and that there are challenges in being a queer person growing up in the world today. Um, and so I wanted to expand their set of expectations. I think my reasoning for it was that I grew up reading a lot of stories telling me about how life was going to be difficult. And I understood that to be important. Um, and I still believe that those stories are important. But I also wanted to tell happy coming out story because I want young queer kids to understand that they should be able to reasonably expect their parents to love them and protect them when they come out to them. And if they don't, if that doesn't gel with their experience, if their experience coming out was fraught and they're sad and they're angry, I want them to feel valid in that anger because they know deep in their heart that they deserve to be protected and to be loved in a way that they 
we're not. Um, and so I like having this sort of breadth of narratives. I wanted both stories. I, I still value and love stories that are both challenging and stories that are comforting because I like that range of expectations. I love that. You're, you're setting an expectation that it should be um, accepted and embraced. Um, yeah, and it's and definitely based on my my experience with my parents as well, um, because they were incredible when I came out to them, and I had no idea that they were going to be so supportive. I really was entirely in the dark about where they what their position was on that when I was a kid. Yeah, may I ask you how old you were when you shared with them? I was, I think, sixteen or seventeen when I came out, and it was an accident. Um, like I mentioned before, my parents tend not to read, and I was a pretty good student, um, and I did like to write, and so I wrote an essay, um, and my parents had sent me to parochial school my entire life, and so I was Catholic educated um, for all 12 years of my education um, before college, and I wrote an essay about um, about coming out and about uh, a crisis of faith and where I positioned myself within Catholicism, because my parents are very Catholic and my, you know, my grandmother used to be a nun. We're very, very um, entrenched in that religious tradition, at least um, uh, in our experiences. And I'm not sure how dogmatic they ever were when I was growing up, but that was something that was important to my family. And I didn't know how they were going to react when I told them. And so I just decided I wasn't going to, I was gonna come out after college, after I could have agency and make my own decisions. Maybe and be out of the house. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And be out of the house and not have to worry about it so much. Um, yeah. But I, I wrote an essay for a class and I got a really good grade on it. And because my parents don't really read, I thought it was safe to just leave it lying around the house. And my mom saw it and she was like, he got a really good grade on this. It must be good rate. It must be a good read. So she read it and uh, <laughs> she got back from work um, the next day and she was like, hey, do you want to do you want to talk about something? I read this essay of yours and I was like, oh, Okay, so I guess we're going to have this conversation. And her main concern was she didn't know how my dad was going to react um, because they also never talked about this. This wasn't something that was kind of in the water for them culturally, and it wasn't something that really um, came up in their day to day lives very much. Um, and so she was kind of worried because she's like, well, your dad is, you know, he has very strong ideas about what it means to be a man, and, you know, masculinity is important to him. And so he, we don't know what narratives he has built up about this sort of thing. So um, if you feel like coming out to your dad, we're going to sit down as a family and we're going to do that. And I was like, sure. Um, if you know, it's unfair that dad doesn't know. So he should also know I will come out to him as well. Um, my little brother already knew. And so he kind of overheard the conversation. He was like, hey, I'm going to be there for you too, just in case this goes really badly. <laughs> and so from the jump, everyone that I had come out to in my family, like within the span of five minutes was already on board. And they were mostly concerned about, okay, how do we keep you safe as we you know, proceed a little bit further? And then my dad comes home and we're all, <laughs> my mom says, okay, we have a, an important discussion to have with you, come up to Trung's room. And so he knew it was <laughs> gonna be about me. And so it was my entire family sitting in my bedroom and I remember it going very quiet and I made eye contact with my little brother and he was like, you got this. And I was like, thank you, kid. He was like 12 or 13 at the time. Oh. <laughs> and so it was very sweet. Um, and I took a deep breath and I explained myself to my dad. I was like, I'm gay. This is what I envision my future to be like. I'm going to fall in love with someone um, who is a man or is of the same gender as me. Um, and he was like, sure. 
that's fine. <laughs> and he had no. Did you like um, fall out of your seat because yeah, you were, I had know so much buildup? I was completely stunned because we had all built up in our heads that my dad, you know, my dad's reaction to this might be totally unpredictable, but none of us saw this particular reaction coming. Um, and then the the aftermath was that was that he sort of like he sort of realized that my life was going to be more difficult than he thought it was going to be. And so then he became very worried about my safety. But that was sort of the extent of any concerns that he had about my life. He's just, he was just very happy to be included um, within this kind of family, um, this family dialogue. And it, it was just, it, it was a really wonderful moment for me and for my family. And we'd always been pretty close, but that was kind of what cemented it, where I realized that, you know, as a young queer person, I didn't have to imagine a life where I would have to make it on my own just in case my coming out goes horribly sideways. My parents were just there for me because that's what they felt their role as parents needed to be. Oh, and we're getting so many comments, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it is so heartwarming. And I love the fact that you said, you know, you wanted to write a positive experience because that is the type of expectation we should be setting. Um, because that's so true, whether or not that's reality yet. That is what we should be living up to. Um, and, you know, what advice might you have for other parents? Like, what are some specific things that they can do to create a positive experience for their children? Because I think it's, you know, especially in our culture, by the way, it's hard enough to confront our parents on any topic. Mm -hmm. right? yes. <laughs> we just live in a culture where, you know, it's very much respect your elders, don't cross boundaries. Um, and I mean, maybe less so now in our generation, but it still exists, right? I think most broadly, uh, I want them to try. Um, and I think the magic fish is about a parent who tries and someone who really doesn't understand, you know, the language or the dialogue. And I think that's something that everyone can relate to at all times, because our language and the ways that we describe ourselves, no matter what language we're speaking, shifts culturally. It starts to, you know, certain words develop some baggage, and then over time the baggage goes away or it comes back in a different way. And so the ways that we describe ourselves, especially among queer people, it changes all of the time. And so at anyone at any point in time could be using language that might need some adjustment. Um, and so being unafraid of getting things wrong as long as you try is always a great first step. Um, and then kind of making room to make adjustments. Um, I think making sure that your kid understands that you are listening to them and that you can change in small ways to sort of make home a little warmer for them is, is important for them to know. And I think I was less nervous about coming out to my dad because I remembered, you know, that that moment when I was 10, where I simply asked my dad to tell me that he loves me out loud. And then he did it. It gave me the impression that my parents pay attention to me and that they're, you know, and that the things that I want from them and the ways that I want my life to look actually matter to them. And that's always really wonderful. It's it's such a simple thing, but I'm sure it's very complicated and it varies from family to family. But just making sure that your kid knows that you hear them is is a great start. Oh, that's great advice. And uh, Jung's mom and dad, if you're out there, oh my gosh, we love you already. <laughs> great you did good. I'll, I'll make them listen to this episode and, and I'm sure they'll be very flattered. 
<laughs> to explore more of Jung's work, visit his website at trungles.com or follow our Instagram page at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode number 41. And a shout out to Matt Young for editing support on this episode. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.